It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, it is budget crunch time up in Albany, and who better to go over all of the gossip, who's ahead, who's behind, what's going to pass, who's mad at who, is Zach Williams, Albany reporter of The New York Post. Welcome, Zach. Thanks for having me. So before we get into all the nitty gritty, how long have you worked at The Post and why are you a journalist? Ooh, oh, wow. Because <laughs> you're a so, human being. I don't want to just talk about everyone else. We want to get a little bit of you in here, too. Fair enough. Well, I've been covering Albany for five years now. The first four were for City and State magazine mm-hmm. and the last year for The Post. Excellent. And I guess in terms of why I became a journalist, I think the idea got in my head when the Iraq war began way back when. And now that feels like so, so long ago. Yeah. But my path to The Post and to City and State and to Albany was a bit unconventional. I spent my 20s acquiring a lot of eccentric experiences, traveling in China, Central America, working on trail crew, all sorts of things. And then uh, I landed nearly one year or one year ago, one decade ago in uh, New York City and kind of worked my way up in local news. That's awesome. I love that. And I love your experience of traveling the world and seeing how things work and getting a wide perspective on things. I think that would inform your journalism. Oh, I'd say it certainly does. Something I take pride in is while being a millennial is has not always been easy, you know, the yeah. 2008 financial crisis and graduating as a wannabe journalist into the worst journalism economy like ever. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of my experiences outside journalism really have given me some insights into, you know, what <laughs> what normal people go through. You know, yes. I've uh, worked in a grocery store. I've worked with my hands on, you know, in forestry mm. done all, you know, worked in restaurants, a waiter. You know, and I think one thing kind of put it together in a really good way. Once a gaggle with state Senate, a majority leader, Andrew Stewart-Cousins, was happening outside our Albany office. And there was just a few reporters that couldn't get quite close enough. So I just held all their phones in my hand, one hand, kind of like a, a fan. And somebody afterwards was like, you were a waiter, weren't you? Like, you got me. <laughs> That's great. So you're not in the elitist ivory tower of the media. You are a real person reporting real stories. So That's the way I like to put it. <laughs> yes. So let's get right into it. Now, we're talking Friday, March 24th. The budget expires very soon in about a week on March 31st. Do you think this budget will be on time? No. And I'll put it and I'll give two reasons why. One of them is while the April 1st deadline is the statutory deadline to get the budget done. You know, an on-time budget is kind of a loose concept up here at all. But, you know, typically every year they get it done. If they don't get it done on April 1st, they'll get it done on April 2nd or 3rd. Last year, things went a bit long over bail, and a final deal wasn't passed until April 9th. And there's very little reason to think that things w- at best will not be this, be like that this time around. But the governor and Assembly Speaker Carl Hasey have both, you know, pretty openly said that they're okay with a late budget, mm-hmm. possibly for weeks longer than what we've seen before. And now with this impasse over bail, the state Senate and the Assembly rejected it in their budget resolutions. The governor is saying that she's going to fight for it and notes that she held up the budget last year on that very issue. So, you know, the chatter within the Capitol is we might see a budget later 
than what we've seen in years, you know, maybe even into the month of May. So I want to get into all of the disagreements between the Democratic governor and the Democratic legislators. But before we get into that, let's start with something the Republicans put forward. GOP assembly members who are way in the minority, they put in a bill to have pre, I don't know if it was a bill or what kind of entity it was, but it was to have pre-COVID press access. Because of COVID, the press's access was limited. And it I guess it was a bill because it failed big time in the assembly. Why would it fail? Is the assembly hostile to the press? Or is it maybe they don't want Republican grandstanders to get attention? You know, what do you think was the motivation for killing that? You know, we should like press access. We should like sunlight being the best disinfectant. Well, I sure hope so. Well, I would say, based on what I've seen with Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty and the Democratic members of his chamber, you know, it's not that they're hostile to the press. They just want to deal with the press on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Now, before COVID struck, well, first I should point out that there are no real rules on the press in the assembly. Nothing's written down. Hmm. There is like a very small, a short line in the rules that say, yeah, you should give some seats to the press. But it doesn't say really where they can go, where they can't go. For many years, there were at least unofficial rules, a practice that journalists, you know, who were credentialed as members of the Legislative Correspondents Association, of which I'm the president this year, ah, um, good know, to could, know. could roam the assembly chamber fairly freely. You know, don't interfere with, with session. You know, if people are talking on the floor, you know, now's not the time for an interview. But, <laughs> you know, if people kind of got their chairs on the edge or if they're walking around the chamber a little bit, you know, no biggie to say, hey, I want to talk to you about X, Y, and Z, you know, care to maybe step in the back or step outside, talk about it a little bit. And then there was another area that's in the front of the chamber where the speaker has his office. And for years and years, journalists would line up outside there. And when we had a critical mass, you know, the speaker would come out and, uh, you know, answer a few questions. And you could say rightfully, once COVID struck, they limited access dramatically for members and journalists to the chamber. And, you know, two, three years later, you know, while journalists can go back into the chamber, it's kind of relegated to certain areas where the CDNR can't roam around like the fun days where you could get, you know, some quick comments, you know, for your story. And of course, anywhere close to Speaker Hasty's office is completely off limits without an invitation. So, you know, we feel as reporters that this you know, inhibits our ability to do our job. We uh, released a letter on behalf of the LCA some months ago. Assembly Speaker said, ah, what are you talking about? Everything's great. I'm like, okay, that's not how we see it. And things have kind of sat there. Now, the Assembly Republicans, who for obvious reasons have, you know, a have good motivation to maybe embarrass the Democrats, you know, took up the cause the other day and introduced a resolution where, you know, to their credit, they spoke up for the press and said, hey, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of things in this building that we don't know mm-hmm. go on, and we're members of this chamber, and we need the reporters to come in. And yeah, they're not always fun, especially those that maybe work for the New York Post. They didn't put it that way. <laughs> but, you know, we need them here. It's time to, you know, go back to the pre-COVID rules. They put it up for a vote. And my guess, I think there's two reasons why it failed by so much. Well, maybe three. One was Carl Hasty was just on the floor a little bit. And when you have your powerful leader on the chamber, people tend to notice and I had heard that maybe a few people switched some votes on some prior resolutions and proposed rules change once they saw Carl Hasty was keeping his eye on it. Mm. But more importantly, this was sponsored by the Republicans. So yeah. what, what is a Why better give way them a to win? think a resolution 
than have the Republicans do it. But I would be very, very curious looking at the board and seeing all these, you know, progressive legislators who, you know, typically are speaking up for the press and speaking up for, you know, these these tenants of liberal democracy, if right. you will. And I would just love to know how many of them even knew what they were voting on. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. That could be a good story. So let's get into the nitty gritty of the budget. Her released her budget. She has a, a pretty subtle change to bail, but it's of an important one, allowing judges to have more discretion. She wants to lift the charter school cap in New York City. She has a certain amount of MT, a certain way of getting MTA funding that the legislators have other ways of getting it. All kinds of things. Now, what do you think is going to be compromisable, and what do you think? will could create a real logjam? Ooh, very good question. It, you know, when you looking at this budget fight, there's kind of this this meta narrative of, you know, the executive versus the legislature, the left in the legislature versus the relatively centrist governor. And we've seen this this fight kind of play out over recent months over that court pick that Hochul had. You Hector know, LaSalle. Centrist judge. Yes. Exactly. That was hard to lost. watch. That was hard to watch. Oh, that governor of ours. And but she stuck with it. He went down. And now that fight is continuing through the budget. You know, a lot of folks are wondering, you know, are the super majorities in the state Senate and assembly going to kind of get everything that they want? You know, if they all stuck together, you know, a veto proof majority like that can do whatever it wants on the budget. Now, the question is, and uh, just just for the Hector Hector LaSalle thing real quick. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was such a flex by the legislature that I wonder if maybe now they're really like feeling their oats. Like, look at the power that we have. We can just we can just run this town. We can just run Albany. Exactly. And <laughs> there are more than a few progressives, I assure you, who feel quite emboldened or empowered, as Andrea Stewart-Cousins Empowered, put it, uh, that's a, a nicer week or word. two ago. Yeah. And why not? They just dealt the governor a historical blow. No judge pick had ever been rejected in legislative history. And now it's on to the budget. And there are some issues, as you point out, where where negotiation appears to be the name of the game. You know, yeah. building electrification effort, for example. You know, the governor wants no new gas hookups in buildings below three stories or below to start in 2025. The so-called uh, gas ban, which, you know, you're not going to have or sorry, gas stove ban in new buildings. Mm-hmm. Now, the legislature wants something more aggressive. I believe they want seven stories and below. And the second wave of implementation would also be, I believe, a little bit quicker. So that's one issue where more likely than not, you know, they're going to find some agreement. Because Compromisable. You know, there's exactly there's two types of issues here. You know, there's, you know, charters bail, the proposed ban on flavored tobacco, where the legislature just opposes and doesn't seem interested whatsoever in, you know, negotiating much on those issues. And then there's issues like building electrification, the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. You know, the governor wants to peg it to inflation. Legislature is perfectly fine with that. But first, they want to boost it to 20 or so bucks an hour. So, you know, we might see some negotiation on, on something like that. Maybe they'll raise it to $17 or $18 or $19. You know, we'll, we'll just have to see how negotiations go. And likewise with building electrification. But on bail, you know, that's the biggie. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's... You know, there's bail and then there's bail, right? Yes. The change that the governor is proposing would eliminate this the least restrictive standard for any bail-eligible offense. So any situation where a judge can impose bail, they do not need to consider, if this proposal passes, the least restrictive standard. Now, 
some judges have complained, well, look, I got some repeat offender in my court. It looks like they, because they've, you know, they were, they were arrested and then they were arrested again. It looks like maybe I could hold them on bail, but I'm also technically supposed to hold them on the least restrictive conditions. And now holding someone in jail, typically, especially for nonviolent offense, isn't the most least restrictive condition. Maybe it's release them on, you know, their own reconnaissance or maybe an ankle bracelet or maybe something else. But that said, it's a pretty simple change, you know, for 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 bail eligible crimes, this standard does not apply. So I'm really don't see where there's area for, you know, negotiation. You know, in past bail fights, it was like, okay, we're going to count, you know, include class J felonies, but not class K felonies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a lot, just a big jumble of all sorts of crimes that, you know, people could pick and choose and say, okay, third degree burglary, yes, but fourth degree burglary, no, whatever it, it, you know, and, you know, the chatter in the Capitol right now is if the governor wins on bail, she wins. Yeah, this (laughs) is the big one. No matter how the the legislature might steamroll her on other issues. Right. But if she doesn't get that change, you know, the headlines are all going to be, and I work for the New York Post mm-hmm, after all, that mm-hmm. she didn't get a bail deal. Mm-hmm. And I think charters is a similar dynamic. You mm-hmm. know, the organ- the teachers union hates it now, but I think there might be a little bit of wiggle room. You know, the governor is proposing effectively to allow like 100 more charter schools to open in New York City. Maybe just maybe they'll pass something that will let, you know, five new ones. Because after all, it's not like there's 100 schools that are ready to open right. tomorrow because of that. So, Long story short, two types of issues, those they can compromise on and those that seemingly they can't because Mm -hmm. the legislature rejected it and bails the the top one on that side by far. The MTA funding, the governor's budget has a slight increase in the payroll tax to pay for the MTA. I know the Democratic Senate was lost. I think it was 2009, if I'm not mistaken. A lot of people say because of the payroll tax. It was really bad in the suburbs. So they've come up, the legislature, in their two and their house bills, two one house bills, talk about raising corporate taxes, raising income taxes on very rich people making five million or more, uh, a fee on package deliveries, a new fee on Uber and Lyft, a fee to watch Netflix, sort of this sort of nickel and dime approach to to make up that money. Do you think this funding source for the MTA is compromisable or is it is it going to be a loggerheads? Well, no surprise that the MTA would be the biggest mess of all, right? Yeah, right. I... <laughs> it's just there's so many moving parts. This, no this pun intended. It's, yeah, <laughs> because it's, you know, it's big. The whole state's economy depends on the MTA, even, you know, even if you're in Rochester, where they get the train cars. From. And uh, I love and... the train. I take the train all the time. I love Grand Central Madison. I'm a big fan, just to say. Go ahead. Exactly. And, and, you know, this is an issue where you have, like you, like you point out the payroll tax, you know, there's this ghost from, from the prior state Senate majority of 2009 that was destroyed by a a suburban backlash to higher taxes on commuters or the businesses that employ them. And the governor, while it's not the same exact tax as before, it's similar and it's certain markets politically in a similar way, which is exactly, which is be scared. The New York City liberals are trying to take all your money and your jobs. Right. Be scared. Suburban. It's perfect for the Republicans running against the Democrats in the suburbs. Perfect. Well, and it's perfect for suburban Democrats to to hate on uh, Mm -hmm. in their own quest for survival. Now, west of Hudson, Democrats have upstate. Well, on your eye. North of the city, west of the Hudson, Rockland County, Orange County, which are served by the MTA technically, but actually use NJ Transit. You know, lawmakers from that area are really 
upset, to say the least, that, you know, businesses in their neck hmm. of the woods would have to pay this higher tax when they get arguably the worst MTA service of it all. You know, no metro northwest of the Hudson, you know, all buses, you got to go through New Jersey for a lot of them. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. So they do not like that. And coupled with her housing plan, and brought that one. Well, up. I wanted that's my next one. So I'm glad you brought <laughs> yeah, it up. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. Coupled with that one, there's just, you know, this the suburban backlash that the governor has to deal with, bipartisan, no less. Now, you oh, know, yeah. the Republicans only matter so much when the votes get, can, get counted, but they can get a lot of press. They can put a lot of pressure on suburban Democrats. And, you know, it just seems that the legislature prefers this kind of bucket of solutions compared to, you know, some of the big ticket, big money items, this tax. Also, the governor is pushing for New York City to contribute $500 million per year. Mayor Eric Adams doesn't like that. So she's got a, a lot of different fights on MTA funding. And some of them are just, you know, while the money might not add up to uh, on the legislative on the legislative proposal side, well, the money might not, you know, might not. It might be a lot more proposals that are, you know, ten million here, hundred million there. Some of them are some real political tripwires. The repealing the property tax abatement for Madison Square Garden, for example, yeah. is one of them. I believe that would yield about a hundred million dollars yeah. per year. Now the state senate approved that. You know, there's been a long fight in recent months about, you know, James Dolan, the owner of Madison Square Garden. Right, with his facial recognition uh, and, his, and booting people who he doesn't like. Yeah, and sicking uh, Rangers fans, you know, on the on the state liquor authority, all sorts of things. You know, he's he's an easy... You don't uh, want those Ranger bag. fans coming at you, trust me. <laughs> no, no. It's, I, I, I would never deign to upset <laughs> the blue shirts. But, you know, there's just a lot of moving parts. You know, he's he's a powerful mogul. He knows how to stir up a storm, that's for sure. He's a donor to, to Governor Kathy Hochul. You know, she needs his cooperation for a lot of her Penn State plans, no that's less. That's right. Or Penn State, Penn, Penn Station, sorry. I knew that's what you uh, meant. So, so she wants to do, a, you know, a couple big revenue items for the MTA. The legislature is like, no, that's going to kill us politically in the suburbs. So let's, you know, let's do 50 million here, 100 million there, get it all at, to add up. But I think there'll be a lot of room for negotiation on that. You know, whenever you're proposing an increase in taxes, it can be hard when you're dealing with the Republicans, you raise it by a dime. They say you raise taxes, which yeah. is technically true. But, you know, whether it's, you know, but one way or another, <laughs> You know, I, I think that they can negotiate either, you know, that tax. Yeah. And when yeah, you have all of these different yeah. options, it's sort of like an a la carte thing. We'll take a little of yours. We'll take a little of mine and we'll cobble it together. That's I feel like that's compromisable, difficult and horrible to do, but doable. Doable. And we only need to look at the mess that happened after the opening of Grand Central Madison and how it affected yeah. the Long Island Railroad to see that once things go awry for commuters, politicians either start attacking or started defending, but they start doing things. Yeah, so, <laughs> so you know, true. people recognize that the MTA and commuter rails matter. Nobody wants them to fail. It's just a matter of finding out who can raise money without being blamed for it yeah. by the people that have to pay. Yeah, <laughs> that's very well put. I mean, and they're so important uh, politically, yes, but also 
in terms of getting people where they need to go, the city running, the economy. I mean, it's, the stakes are very high there for this for for the MTA to to be able to function properly. All right, let's go to housing. We did transportation. Now housing. I have some very strong feelings Ooh. on the stripping away of local zoning control, but we don't have to get into that now. <laughs> is so that yeah. yeah? Go ahead. You go. I mean, I'm just wondering. Is this? Why don't you just go? I think you. you... <laughs> <laughs> well, there's two. So. How many years have people lamented the lack of housing, especially downstate? And, and I you know, and I am numbers. a big fan. I just, for the record, I'm a huge fan of transit-oriented development. That's what got me to run in the first place. Seeing these opportunities, helping them when I was an elected official made me feel great. I'm all for it. But, but it seems that her plan, the governor's plan, is so wildly unpopular in so many places precisely because it strips away local control. Well, let's take a step back to last year because, okay. you know, the governor came in and she said, you know, I'm, I'm a can do type of person and I'm going to get along with people and I'm going to respect local governments because I was in there, you know, in Hamburg, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> so she proposed something to to upend local zoning controls by by allowing people to construct accessory dwelling units, you know, mm -hmm. granny cottages, you know, in-law, you know, mm. pool houses, that type of mother, thing. They call that them on Long Island, mother daughters, mother daughters. <laughs> there we go. And, you know, and people would, as of right, to use a wonky term, would be allowed to build these little cottages, whatnot, adjacent housing on their property. Now, very long story short, you know, suburban nights, by and large, cried bloody murder. You're destroying the suburbs. How dare you, governor? And she retreated. And that kind of underscored how, hey, I'm going to listen to local governments yeah. and I'm not going to fight a losing cause. Hmm. And so one year later, she introduces something that's like, OK, we're going to have housing production targets downstate three percent each year. You got to increase your housing units by three percent upstate one percent, a goal that's much pretty easy for a lot of those upstate localities to me. But three percent on Long Island, New York City, Westchester, et cetera. Now. Her, she kind of has this carrot and stick approach where it's like, okay, you got, you got to meet and you figure out how to do it. I don't care how you, how you increase it by 3%, just do it. But if you don't, basically we're going to, we're going to allow developers to build it anyways, by using this, this new kind of state process to kind of override your local, <laughs> your local uh, zoning. And, and along with that, she also proposed and this is where I think you're upending local zoning in the most literal and direct way that anywhere, I believe, I believe it's within a half mile, maybe it's a mile, but anywhere close to a transit hub, you know, LIRR stations, Metro North stations, et cetera, will have to create, you know, basically allow more housing to be built there. Right. So it's within, within a half. Much less of a choice. Within <laughs> a half mile radius of, say, every Long Island railroad station, every Metro North station, you increase density 50 units per acre, which I did the math. It's about 25,000 units within a 10 minute walk of the train station. That's what that means. And there's, you know, right infrastructure there. issues, especially when we talk about Long Island, there's, you know, a lot of communities are built on marshes or there's no sewers. There's some infrastructure issues and there's not enough money. It was 250 million in the budget to pay for all of the infrastructures wrought by this for the entire state, which is nothing, basically. And that's another problem with it. Exactly. And certainly, I think there's some good points to be made that Long Island, which I believe is, is doesn't even have like a, you tell me, a unified sewage system or something like that. You know, it's kind of an outlier. It's a hodgepodge. Of, yeah. Who has sewage? Yeah, exactly. So that means more money. And, you know, and the way that it really works out at the village level, you know, the hamlet level, whatnot, town level, you know, we're talking about 
oh, you know, maybe, you know, Scarsdale, which has 18,000 people, I believe the number worked out where they would get like, you know, 100,000 bucks or something, you know, compared to, to a town which had less people, which would get maybe, I think it was like $2 million. That's reported huh. by New York Focus, an excellent piece that came out yesterday. So, Interesting. It's, you know, villages get the least, towns get more, cities get the most. Now, that makes sense a lot of the time. New York City is way better than, you know, any any village you're going to put out there. But sometimes villages are pretty darn big, aren't they? And sometimes they're villages because they don't want to be a city because cities, you know, maybe got to do a lot of, you know, people want to keep a nice, small, little suburban village the way that they want to be. And maybe that's uh, fair. And maybe it's not fair for people that want to, you know, live close to New York City, too. But that's just the way it is. And I think, you know, at the meta level, I think a lot of housing experts have and would say that what the governor is proposing, you know, a, a target and then lots of incentives to meet that target without a lot of like rules on at least on the 3%, 1% thing on how you do it isn't a bad policy, generally speaking. No, and I think most politics? people would agree with the goal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most people agree with the goal, but, you know, everyone agrees on the goal of beating cancer. It all gets back to like, how <laughs> right. do we do it? Right? right. And, you know, the Senate and the assembly just basically said like, you know, forget the stick. We're growing a huge carrot and we're just going to throw money at whoever wants to build housing. And if an Oyster Bay or Scarsdale or some other affluent suburb doesn't want to do it, well, you know, then we'll just have to figure out how to make them like carrots more. Yeah. And, you know, long story short is this is a very ambitious plan for the governor, arguably the most important policy proposal that she has. You know, housing, huge, obviously. We need housing. Rent's crazy. I can't believe it, what they're charging nowadays. And, you know, and people want to help her promote more housing. It just all comes down to a bunch of suburban lawmakers who don't want it necessarily in their districts because their constituents hate the, you know, something that's not, you know, a one-family house on a one-acre you know, being, you know, the definitive type of housing in their community. And, you know, and maybe also they the, don't the, want a bunch of townhouses. Again, it's mm-hmm. like the payroll tax. It's like the politics again, you know, local, local control, not hocal control. They've got all these posters. This will Ooh, be, it does. Isn't that clever? This will be used to hit the, there we have local elections coming up in towns and, and towns and our cities on Long Island. This year, our legislatures are up for reelection. So all the Democrats are going to be bashed with this saying that you just want to make this the sixth suburb, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's the political part of it that I'm concerned is going to make Democrats lose worse. And that's something that maybe I hate to be, I don't mean to be insulting, but was just like kind of tone deaf about this proposal to me politically. Well, I, I would I would have to say, and I'm sure you know that, you know, many a suburban politician has suffered a defeat or two in recent years yeah. because of policies that had very little to do with what was actually happening yeah. in their in their neck of the woods. I can relate now, to that. You know, <laughs> maybe you could. I think I recall something. So, you know, I think this gets back to, you know, housing. They need more more of it. There's many ways to skin a cat, so to speak. And I love cats. But, you know, the governor needs a victory on bail. And there's not a lot of negotiation. Bail's the big one. Bail's the big one. Exactly. And where is she probably going to put a bunch of her political capital? What did she hold a press conference on the other day? Bail. She needs a win. There's not a lot of negotiation. That probably means that there's going to be a lot of negotiation on housing and all the other things we've talked about. Yes, you're right. You know, she's in a weakened position and she only has so much political capital. And unless she wants to 
you know, completely contradict the political brand as the nice, you know, we'll work with you governor and just go full Cuomo, if you will, on the budget. I just don't see how she can kind of balance all these competing fights with the legislature, who, after all, are the ones that will vote on the budget. So, you know, I think we're going to see, you know, some changes in the governor's proposal on housing. You know, that could mean the housing targets stay in place, you know, at least in theory, but with weakened enforcement could mean the transit-oriented development thing uh, Mm -hmm. comes and goes, or maybe it's, you know, within a quarter mile of a station, or maybe only in stations with, you know, populate, you know, in cities of populations of more yeah, than one million. Yeah, you can adjust those numbers. Uh, <laughs> those That's easy exactly. to do. You still get a bit of a win. You say you did it. You compromised. Aren't I great? But bail is the holy grail. I guess we could call it the holy bail of what I would imagine she needs to do. We only have about one minute left, but I just want to touch on this. Conventional wisdom is that the governor in New York has a lot of power. There's also the sense that this particular governor has not, maybe because she's new, I mean, and it's not easy. It's easy to criticize. It's not easy to do. But is not wielding that power. People look at the pay raise that the legislators got for nothing in return. They're looking at, the, at Judge LaSalle. What is the power that she has? What is it? So most directly in a budget, you know, gov- governors have lots of powers. You know, she has she has one power that she's using a lot is to go to communities whose mayors and and city council and whatnot need her help in the budget and get them to say, OK, I love her housing plan. We've seen a lot of those Long Island officials love her housing plan. You just have to notice that no legislators or very few of them are ever on these press releases. But a governor in the budget process has an enormous amount of constitutional power. And what do I mean by that? You know, when push comes to shove and there's an impasse with the governor and the legislature, the governor can dare the legislature to shut down the government. Basically, by using, you know, continuing resolutions to keep the government going, you know, to keep payroll going and all that as negotiations continue and inserting her budget. This is something that David Patterson did effectively taking her whole budget and saying, this is our spending resolution to keep the government going for the next two weeks or a month or whatnot. I'm going to make it my budget and it's going to be everything I want to be. And we can keep the government going on my terms indefinitely. And I dare you legislature to shut down the government. Now, you know, I think there's two problems with this. One, we've seen at the federal level that government shutdowns almost always hurt the executive. They're mm-hmm. the one in charge. Mm-hmm. They're usually the only one that anybody, you know, your average Joe even knows the name of. Yeah. Who knows who and their assembly that, person is? Hardly anybody. And, and Hochul is, you know, anything that looks chaotic is going to make her look bad. And I think the, you know, the second thing are those super majorities, you know? Yeah. You both know, houses, if, be, in, case, in case listeners don't know, both houses have a super majority that could override a veto. And super majorities can do that. They can do it on the budget. And one important change I would like to, you know, just to close things out that I'd like to notice within the state Senate Democratic supermajority, you know, there used to be a, a, quite a few Long Island moderates. They're gone now. They've been replaced swept away. By, you, know, you could say by upstate senators who now represent seats that used to be Republican, who are much more to the left. You know, Leah Webb in the Southern Tier is a good example of that. So, you know, the the chances of kind of picking off now they only have forty two in the Senate. It takes forty two to make a super majority. Hoku would only need to pick off one, but the LaSalle fight showed mm-hmm. that stick together. when the state Senate Democrats feel that they are they have a fight as an institution against the governor. Everybody flocks together, whether or not they maybe thought LaSalle was the the better choice. And I, 
you know, I would be really shocked after all we've seen in recent months, if the governor can really make any big inroads to break up that unity, because it just seems that the legislature is emboldened, empowered again, as Stuart Cousins said, and that the governor is really going to have to pick and choose her battles in the remaining negotiations to get that victory on bail that really Zach she needs. Williams, we will all be reading you and following you on Twitter, reading you in the New York Post. Thank you for enlightening us. This was really great. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Listeners, please like and subscribe. Cut to the Chase Extra. And if you want to cut to the Chase more of it, go listen to the 77 Talk Radio WABC on Sundays at 4 p.m. We will always cut to the chase, try to keep it as short as possible and keep you informed. 